the insurance industry is seen as a, uh, an expert in this space and a thought leader in this space, and it's providing leadership and Oasis as part of that. Welcome to the Instec London podcast number 32. I'm Matthew Grant, one of the partners at Instec London. Uh, and this week I'm talking to Dickie Whittaker. Dickie is CEO and co-founder of the Oasis loss modeling platform. He founded Oasis in 2011 as an open source, not-for-profit business. And the platform is there to provide a way for companies of all sizes that have created catastrophe models, which are used by insurers for assessing the risk from flood earthquake, windstorm, and uh, many other natural and man-made perils um, to make these tools easily and cheaply available to a wide community, mainly in insurance, but actually increasingly outside of insurance um, as well. Now, Dickie and his team are based in the old leather market in London. It's a great place to work, uh, but as we found later, not ideal for recording a podcast. So please forgive some echo and background noise in this one. Okay, I'm here with Dickie Whitaker, who is the founder of Oasis Loss Modeling Framework. Dickie and I have known each other for, for over 25 years. Dickie, when we first got together, you were a successful reinsurance broker, Guy Carpenter. Just give a little bit of perspective of what's happened since then. Uh, well, quite a lot, Matthew, actually. I think, so to start with, um, uh, there was an organisation called Equicat, which was being formed at that point, now called CoreLogic, as most people know. And they were looking for somebody from the broking side to help the team, actually including you, to help them understand what the insurance industry was about. So I started working for it. I just thought this is just so much more interesting than broking. And that sort of was the start of, of my interest in account modelling, which then I then moved from there to uh, other parts of the analytical function in a broker, ran, ran teams in London and, and New York, and then decided that actually if we were going to do something really useful uh, I needed to be free of the bonds of some of these big companies. So seven years ago, I left Guy Carpenter and pretty much uh, instantaneously started Oasis, although I was funded by Innovate UK and, and uh, some other innovation funding, which helped me get off the ground. Can you just say a few words about what Oasis core business is? And then I'd like to talk a little bit about what makes you unique in the, in the modeling space. And I think it's also a really useful way to think about some of the other areas of technology and data coming into insurance. I think fundamentally, when, when you know, after sort of 20 odd years in the, at that stage, or a little less than 20 years, of being in the modeling space, it became very obvious that we weren't being well served by um, a, a vibrant community that offered choice, that offered transparency, that offered value. And actually, it spawned innovation. That was not happening. So, as a result of that, I thought, well, somebody's got to do this. And if nobody else was going to do it, I realized I was going to have to do it by myself. So. I went to talk to a bunch of chief execs in Monte Carlo and I said, if I start this, will you back me? Uh, they said yes, and, uh, and then I, 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 that's how Oasis actually started. And you, the core business element still is today is around catastrophe modelling. One of the things that, uh, obviously come from that background myself, but in looking what's happening in the sort of mainstream insurance space and people talking about disruption, uh, is in a way you yourself set up as a disruptor to the established companies at the time uh, because you had a slightly different way of how you thought people should be able to use models and access the output and build them into their own, into their own business. The existing marketplace uh, was essentially dominated by 
effectively a couple of big companies. And when you get that sort of situation and you get huge inertia in the system, you get barriers to entry. And when you get barriers to entry, you get lack of competition. When you get lack of competition, you get lack of value and you get lack of innovation. So we were trying to do, to, to do all of that. And the way that I thought was the best way to do it, and at that stage I knew very little about open source software, was to make the software open source, to make it not for profit, and to make the community work together to solve this problem. I was going to say how easy, but how did you go about how, what made you successful in raising funds from some external parties? Um, I think there is, in essence, a couple of things. I mean, you, you, you know, like all organisations, like all companies, you have to have a vision, you have to have leadership, you have to drive that, you have to have enthusiasm, you have to have energy. And, you, of course, you have to think about what you're doing. So you, you really have to have a good story and you have to know the detail. And because I've had, you know, by then 20 odd years or something of experience in cat modelling, I could walk into this place and I say, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it. And people listened. So if anybody looking to get funding, you mentioned Innovate UK, I mean, how, how should they learn more about what's available outside there? Obviously, independent of the, the more conventional angel or VC funds. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's essentially you just you sort of have to find out where these places are. You know, Innovate UK is one, and I've just got some new funds from them actually. Uh, Climate Kick is another, so they were one of our early fund, funders, and they they got some big amounts of money available. Um, H twenty twenty has been a source of funds from for me. There's obviously some challenges with Brexit going forward. Um, there's something called the Global Innovation Fund, and I got some money from them. Um, the, the, you get to find out where these things are because you have to live in this space. And actually, many of the startups that, that use these type of funds, we talk on a regular basis, so we know exactly what the rules are, we know exactly how it works, and we know exactly how to pitch for these things. They're not all easy at all, but you just have to understand the rules and decide which ones fit. And, uh, you know, with one company I started called uh, Oasis Hub fairly recently, um, we've sort of decided that we don't want too many more of these because they actually come with a huge admin load. So, you know, it's very, very, you can be very careful how you start with some of these things. They're fully, fully auditable in many cases. You need very rigorous systems. You need some maturity in your business to be able to handle them. So these are things you learn. I learned the hard way. Um, find, find people that can give advice would be, I think, the thing to do. Um, Cluster modeling itself, uh, and partly what you're doing, you've clearly been successful, you've got... As you can tell us how many clients you've got, you've got 30 fairly active uh, member companies that help you direct the, the, um, the future of the company. Um, why do you think it is that sort of, you know, with all this activity around InsureTech and, and the sort of noise around it, the sort of catastrophe modelling side of it seems to be not you know, marginalised, not, not really discussed very much. Um, but yet, you know, there's a lot going on in that space and a lot of companies, and you yourself providing uh, a platform for I guess, 19 companies now to distribute their, their product. I think there's, a, there's an interesting um, comparison between both sort of what started as being fintech and then, and then more specifically insurtech and, and where innovation needs to take place in mature industries like insurance. So what tends to happen is to begin with is that people end up by focusing on, you know, bright, usually young, smart people end up by focusing on what they know. And what they know is in fintech it was always about payment methodologies in InsureTech, it starts by being how you can actually engage with the customer better. Uh, it's about sort of changing ways of, of intermediation. But it, what it doesn't do is do, because many of these people don't have the experience, to go into the real problems faced by these industries, whether it's banking or insurance. So catastrophe modeling is full of challenges. It's full of standards and archaic methods of 
working and regulation and everything else, you need to really, really understand these things. And, and it's hard to do that without experience. So I think to some degree, and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's not as sexy as some of these other things. I, mean, I still think it is, to be honest with you. But, but maybe other people don't think that. So I think they avoid the level of complexity. And they rather focus on, oh, I'm sure AI could do something here. So it's more, it's more solution-focused than it is problem-focused. It's less strategically focused. I focused on a strategic challenge. I started to focus on a complex issue because I knew that's what the boards of companies I was talking to would, would actually provide funds for. And I think sometimes uh, some insurtech startups actually don't do that. They look at, I've got some expertise in machine learning. Let's see what I can do. And that's... It's not a bad thing, um, but it's uh, but you've got to be careful because you can end up in the periphery of core businesses rather than the heart of core businesses, which is usually where the value of the money is. So back on the the, the uh, sort of open source and as a non-profit, how do you attract people to the business and obtain them if you are operating as a non-profit? I think the first thing is I get a lot of people just sort of phoning me up, sending emails, getting in contact somehow or other, and saying. You know, would really like to come and work with you because it sounds like a sort of thing I'd like to do. There's lots of talk about you know whether or not uh, millennials need to have a sense of purpose in their business or not. Certainly, there is a really large group of people that do want a sense of purpose. You know, and so we, we get that to start with. However, I wouldn't want to say that that by itself is going to do enough. Um, so actually, we have a couple of companies. We have so I have actually four I started and, and two are not for profit and two for profit. And some of them are, are, are structured so that people that work for the not-for-profit one have shareholdings in the for-profit ones. So we've created a structure that deliberately tries to incentivize people to do things. And we have the ability to spin out new companies too. So there are some other things we're talking about doing, which are going to be some new startups in this space um, that will allow some of the people who are still getting their sense of purpose working for one of the main, or working for Oasis, but actually can allow to have some time to build up uh, some sort of e uh, equity in some organisations that may make them some money. How do you manage to run four companies as well as all the extensive partnerships that you have plus the sort of promotion of, of Oasis? The, the only way that I actually do it is they're all connected. So when I go into a meeting with uh, you know whoever it might be and I'm talking about some problem that they have and I'm looking at solutions, I'm bringing together three or four companies that all have related solutions. So there are there are ones around data, there's ones around models, uh, there's ones around research challenges, uh, and there's one around one around consulting. Uh, but they're all they're all linked. So in addition to what you're doing in insurance, you're also now starting to be fairly active outside of the insurance world, still in risk management, but now they're looking at governments and, and corporates. So there, what we're looking at is just the commonality of, of needs between Development banks, developing countries, uh, cities in some cases, and and particularly with structures like the Insurance Development Forum started uh, two or three years ago, which also is trying to do the same thing. So ultimately, if you're looking at a country trying to understand the risk of flood or earthquake, it isn't a substantially different question than the insurance industry has. Why not share the costs and benefits of the techniques and technologies that we're using with those places? They are open to to, to having those sort of conversations. The UN has a whole new initiative right now about trying to create efficiency around understanding risk so that it can fulfill the send-out principles. And the insurance industry is seen as a, uh, a, an expert in this space and a thought leader in this space. And it's providing leadership and oasis as part of that. So it gets back to improving the margin of the insurance industry by having interoperability uh, and by having common standards that work around the world. And that's 
it, it all plays back to efficiency and insurance at the end of the day. Yeah, I think what's going to be interesting to see what happens is corporates get more involved in the whole area of risk uh, and, and natural peril risk. That may actually well then provide more data input to go back into insurance, which in turn provide better analytics for insurance. But let's, let's talk about interoperability. Both you and I are, are big supporters of the concept where you can have, where maybe the industry needs to have ways to be able to access these analytics more easily you built Oasis as, as a platform. So when you talk about interoperability, what does that actually mean in practice for you? Um, interoperability is just about how two different systems or products um, uh, can interact together that is, makes it very easy for the user. I mean, the point is it's about ease of use. Um, it's also about, therefore it's about efficiency, therefore it's about saving costs, and that's something the insurance, the insurance industry is looking at very, very closely. So, you know, simplistically, um, you know, in, in Oasis particularly, it's about the full API layer that we have sitting around Oasis. That means you can plug absolutely anything into into any into Oasis. If you know, if you if you know that, and when there are changes made to the underlying code, we don't change the API layer. So actually, it means that companies don't have to constantly change how they interact with these systems. It it operates in every industry. We are behind the curve. We need to be better in the insurance or insurance industry. So, so on, on the APIs, is that a requirement for companies that are putting models onto the Oasis platform? The models actually are, are put inside Oasis, um, and so therefore it's the Oasis APIs that become the, become the interface with the outside community, not individual modeling uh, or entities or organizations. And then we also use container. Containerization is like a massive, great big thing that's going on. It's almost like the biggest thing that many of the people in the insurance industry I talk to have never heard of. So things like Docker and Kubernetes are, are the ways you can containerize some of these things. So most of the models we have are containerized in some shape or form. I think most people are familiar with an API, but could you just explain a bit more what's the difference between a container and an API and how does that make the data accessible? So both of them, both of them have standardized interfaces um, and standardized ways of putting together. So an API is, is just a, a, a more fundamental way of linking with external systems. The, these containers are, are, are usually ways of bundling pieces of software. So the problem, of course, about software is if you're putting strings of software together, you've got problems. If you change one a bit of it, it can change lots of other things. The thing about containerization is it's a bit like Lego bricks. So actually, if you decide that the Lego brick sitting in the middle of your you know, virtual house, in, in, my, in my example, is wrong, you can sort of take out that one brick and replace it with another brick because the, the ways that those bricks link together are standardized, right? So that Lego brick is a bit like a Docker container, or, and Kubernetes is a little bit different, but it has some similar functions, and that's a Google open, both of them are open source, and, and Kubernetes is a, is a Google sort of spin-out that came from, from, from Google. Um, and they're, and, they're, and they're just, they are just revolutionizing how we're deploying software, and making it much, much more cheaply, and cheaper to build the software, and cheaper to maintain the software. It strikes me as you're talking about it, there's a sort of moment in technology, and I think insurance is going through this, where you may get to the kind of Spotify moment. Whereas if you think back 10 years ago, you know, people were wiring up their homes, they were putting a lot of Cat5 cabling in there or, or some expensive um, hi-fi cables to make sure you have music in every room. Suddenly Spotify came along and with a mobile phone and a Bluetooth device, you can have whatever music you want in any room. And so standards are still important, but there's this very narrow requirement do you, do you see an equivalent to that in insurance way you sort of leapfrog the need to have you know, very detailed accord like standards and actually there's a much simpler way of being able to create interconnectivity across multiple different types of analytics and tools? 
it has to happen and it has to happen fairly soon. Um, I think the, the challenge for the insurance and reinsurance industry is who's going to be doing it. Um, like, you know, there's always a problem with incumbents being able to change quick enough and you know, companies like Kodak are the sort of poster child for this sort of, this sort of thing where they actually you know, invented the, the sort of digital camera and, and, digi and, and digitalization sort of film, um, yet we're, we're not able to change fast enough to be able to survive. Um, there's always a question, and this question will be pertinent to the insurance industry, whether it's in the same position. And I know people that are saying we're moving as fast as we can to make sure that we maintain viability. And I think if you're looking at the industry today, you'd probably go, yeah, but it doesn't look that bad. You know, market shares are still the same. Companies like Trove aren't making that much of an inroads, are they? You know, all of which is true. That doesn't mean it's going to continue to be true. So I think there's going to be an enormous change. And, uh, and there'll be people in the business that will be driving that. And there'll be some external people that will be driving that. And there'll be some players that are around today that will not be around in the future because they won't be able to change quick enough. So that's the game that we're in and it'll happen in the next uh, you know, five to ten years. Let's, let's talk a little bit Dickie, about the, the models you've got on the platform. It'd be good to hear sort of which ones are um, proving most popular. I mean, you, you said earlier you, you came in to try to break into the duopoly of cat modeling out there. So, so how, how's that getting on with the models you've got on there? And also a little bit about you can tell us which companies are, uh, you're working with. There are sort of essentially two strategies that people are looking at using Oasis. So one is a sort of, at the moment, it's a sort of alternative main model for most, for some people. And then for others, it's sort of, it's alternative models from secondary countries around the world, which may not be so well served in any case by, by the two big main players. So one of those two is adopted by most people, apart from uh, companies like AXA actually took a different approach, which was to say, Actually, for them, the value comes from building their own models and using those because that gives them complete insight into how these models work, which, of course, is a key value element of these models. So, you know, what does a good model look like? Well, critically, it's going to be one that you understand, and therefore you understand how to make underwriting decisions and risk management decisions with it. Flood in the US, and that's one area that, partly because of the way floods have been written in the US up until now, but that's, that's changing, and FIP is starting to go out and talk encouraging the, the uh, private market to come in. I mean, are you seeing any really credible flood models coming out from the US that, that may it may have some significant growth with the change in the underwriting environment? Yeah, I think there's, there's, there are two that we're working with quite closely, one being produced by a company called CatRisk, which is an XRMS uh, spin-out, if you like, um, and the other one's based on Bristol University. They're both very different in their approaches. Very full validation support work comes with the Bristol University one. Interesting enough, you know, because you might think that a spin out from a university might not be good at some of that stuff, but actually they're excellent because of their background in peer review and the fact that they publish papers. Um, and then I think uh, Catrice, run by Dag Lohman, you know, has got a, a very, you know, he used to work for FEMA. Um, and then he took over, then he became head of flood modeling for RMS, and now he's got his own company. So he's got a really good pedigree and he's doing some good stuff. And we're, we're working with him very closely on a flood model in the Philippines. So those are some of the ones out there, but I think there are two that are on the horizon that are, that are potentially more interesting. So one is CoreLogic, which, as I mentioned earlier on, was, was originally uh, part of the, what was what's called Equicat, where you and I first met. And um, you know, they've got 197 models or something, and um, they're beginning to put those into, into Oasis, and they, they fully believe that all of them should be better than Oasis. We're starting with their US Quake model. So I think that's significant, and there is, they, the marketplace has said to them, we want you to put your models on Oasis. And then the last one that's sort of interesting because of the scale and, and opportunity is Global Earthquake Model, or GEM, 
So they have got a suite of global models and we're just starting putting them into an of two. So and, and they are they will be they will be very cost effective because they're open source models. They are open source, they're completely transparent. It's going to start transforming how we can consume these products. Um, so just looking looking ahead to the future, what else have you got on the horizon that you can uh, tell us about? Um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a few interesting things going on. So I think, um, I think one of them is, um, and I think this is particularly true of anybody that happens to be sort of thinking about or running a new insurtech organisation, is think about how collaboration can help you drive your business model. So, you know, I'm very happy and, 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 and it's entirely logical to have most companies being a normal profit-making entity. That's how life works. But it doesn't have to be the only model that makes life work. And, you know, and I think there's an increasing need for collaboration. And, and it can actually drive sales and drive growth, I think, perhaps more than just a, a pure vanilla sort of a profit entity. So I think that's just one general observation. It's, and we're seeing that activity all over the place right now. Uh, well, Dickie, thanks very much for coming out some time. You've got a lot going on. And uh, it's been great to be here with you in the leather market, sitting in, uh, in Rawhide, with all the buzz of the startup community in the background. But thanks very much. So if you are either building models or would like access to the Oasis Lost Models, Dickie and his team would be delighted to hear from you. If you're interested in learning more about what we're doing at Instate London, you can find full details of all our monthly events from the last two years and our forthcoming events at www.instech.london. And you may also want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we comment on the latest news and provide information about our own and our partners' events.